If you put two translators of the same author in a room, be it a real room or a Zoom room, will they fight? Are they sort of like hamsters in that regard? Or is peaceful coexistence possible? And maybe let's zoom in on the last sentence, forget the hamsters and the fighting translators. Is peaceful coexistence possible? What does it look like under, under different circumstances? What does living together mean? What does living in a place that's not really your own place mean? These are things that are worth considering, but are not the only things worth considering when you're looking at the literature, the non-fiction literature of the author Li Zhuan, which is what we're going to be doing in this episode. We're going to be looking at two uh, recently published translations of her works, um, Distant Sunflower Fields and Winter Pasture, and we've got the translators of both books on the show. Pretty awesome. Uh, but before we can let the hamsters fight, so to speak, we're going to do the Church of Fake News, the translated Chinese fiction news, not the Church of Fake News, despite what some people have been uh, falsely claiming. So the uh, first little item on the Church of Fake News is kind of a sad one. The China Channel, uh, which was hosted by the Lost, or funded I suppose, by the Los Angeles Review of Books, is closing up. Uh, it's just not getting any more funding grants, so they have posted um, a little goodbye article. It's by the, the editor, Alec Ash. And he's given all sorts of uh, links at the bottom to some of, I think, some of their best content, basically. It's quite a little thoughtful goodbye, so there will be a link to that post in the show notes. And you know, farewell, China Channel. Sad to see you go. Next news item. This one is, um, I suppose, happier news. It's about the Vector magazine, which belongs to the British, or is, was launched by, or whatever, uh, the British Science Fiction Association and it's their 293rd issue, and it is just called Chinese SF. It's all about Chinese sci-fi, and it's got a very peculiar cover. It's um, it's a lady standing at the entrance desk of what looks like some kind of reception desk, rather, of some kind of institute. If uh, I was better at reading calligraphic Chinese writing, I would know what this institution was, but it's kind of a very realistic well, it, it is realistic because it's a photo. Very mundane, but also slightly uncanny scene. So anyway, I'll just read you the description of this issue because um, it's only a fairly long paragraph, but it hits on so many names of many, many people who've been on the show before um, or people who are sort of friends of the show. I'll just, I'll just run through it. Why not? Vector issue 293 is a collaboration with guest editors Yen Wei and Regina Kanyu Wang. Yin Wei introduces the issue as well, as well as many of its recurring concepts, such as techno-orientalism. Regina Kanyu Wang takes us through the history of women writing SF in China. Artist and curator Angela Chan interviews Patrice Glow about her work with colonial histories and the ability of science fiction to, and then in quote marks, tell truthful histories and envision just futures together through art. The conversation about history, future science fiction and art continues in Dan Burnsmith's interview with Gordon Chung. Chinese SF scholars Mia Chen Ma, Frederica Schneider, Wilsecker and Meng Tian Sun offer glimpses of their research and, sorry, their recent and ongoing research. Offers Maggie Shen King, uh, and it says in brackets, an excess male, and Chen Chiu Fan, Wastide, which we've covered on the show, interview each other about their recent novels. Feng Zhang introduces us to the SF fandom in China, while Regina Kanyu Wang brings us up to speed with the accelerating Chinese SF industry. 
Dev Argawal questions the maturity of the Chinese science fiction blockbuster, as can be judged from Shanghai Fortress and The Wandering Earth. And I'm going to insert my own opinion here. They suck. Or rather, Shanghai Fortress sucks. Um, the Wandering Earth is fine. As in, like, three stars. It's fine. Uh, continuing. Virginia L. Kong explores... Kong? <laughs> Virginia L. Kong explores Sinofuturism while Emily Shweni Jin, former guest of the show, uh, delves into the implications of translating a growing body of SF work from Chinese into English. We learn about the global perspectives of Chinese SF from an illustrious panel assembled at Worldcon 2019 and about transnational speculative folklore of the Uyghur people from Sandra Unerman. Unerman? Unerman? Um, jumping in again here to say that's accidentally very appropriate for the episode we're doing today, funnily enough. Continuing on, uh, Neil Harrison completes the issue with an illuminating... Neil Harrison completes the issue with an illuminating survey of Chinese short SF in the 21st century. That's kind of, I mean, that that feels relevant to the podcast because so much of the sci-fi we've done is is that. It's quite recent short stories. But yeah, I I probably dedicated more time to this new segment than I should have. uh, And I've not read this issue yet, but yeah, what what a cool thing. Go check that out. Uh, Last news item. It's called Dingling Boiling Milk. So another text that we've covered previously on the show, actually uh, very early on, it was uh, Sophie's Diary or Miss Sophia's Diary or the uh, Diary of Miss Sophie or however you you, you translate it. I guess the version we read was just called Miss Sophia's Diary. Um, So it's it's very meta because it's not just um, a discussion of the story. It's a post about posting about the story it's about a facebook thread actually i mean it's funny you hear so much about um twitter threads uh and so on twitter thread this twitter thread that um and how you know if you're on twitter you'll often hear about how awful facebook is but um you know not everyone's on twitter almost everyone's on facebook so of course some interesting things happen there so um this is uh, posting it's lucas klein who i believe is a sinologist or a chinese chinese literature scholar and a translator, I, I believe. And he was talking, he's he's shared and, well, he, he introduces and then shares in full a thread about a query of a translation in something in the uh, Tani Barlow translation of Miss Sophia's diary. So um, I won't I won't spoil what it is actually, because it's, um, it's a bit rude. It's a bit naughty, actually, um, which is perhaps appropriate for uh, Sophie's diary, sort of a naughty story. Um, but it's a really interesting um, insight into not just like um, how translations can be sort of accidentally researched, but how people can um, go and dig into them decades after the original translation and learn, re- sort of re-uncover. Uh, un- um, lost knowledge sounds both pretentious and wrong, but he um, learns the origin of a little one little throwaway phrase in the in the translation with a footnote that explains it and basically i won't spoil what it is but it was old beijing slang for something naughty uh, which is no longer got existent this it's not part of uh it's not a euphemism that exists in chinese or in beijing ease anymore so yeah i i <laughs> i think i failed at being concise and have succeeded in being very repetitive there but it's it's a pretty cool thing and the link will be in the show notes so again go check it out 
that's the end of the Trichific news. I will stop wasting your time reading entire uh, blurbs and just let the interview glide on into the winter pastures and into the sunflower fields. Um, let's hear uh, the discussion I had with the translators. I got a Game Boy when I was five, so I've been in this for a long time. I had the Atari. Oh, that trumped everything. I had one. How old were you, old. though? <laughs> I was you probably, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe that age, between five and ten. Okay, Jacks. All right, we're all recording. So, hi, Christopher. Hi, Jack. How is it going? And what have you been up to? Yeah, go ahead first, please. Hi, Angus. Hi, Christopher. Uh, it is going well. Uh, lockdown in the UK has meant that I've not actually been up to that much besides work and reading and trying to while away the time, but it's good. We've had snow here recently, so happy days. Yeah, whereabouts are you? You're in England, right? Yes, I'm in East Yorkshire at the moment, at my mum and dad's between between flats while, uh, while the country opens back up again. Um, but it's been quite pleasant. Yeah, I've had a, a fortunate lockdown so far. Yeah, we've had snow up here too in Dundee, also I guess on the East Coast. Uh, Christopher, how are you doing? Fine, yeah. Hi, both of you. Um, I'm in Toronto to answer that question. <laughs> uh, we've had good snow recently, actually, so um, it's been nice outside. I have this uh, wee little ice rink that's uh, built in my backyard for the boys <laughs> to skate on. So that's been nice. They actually have little snow walls around it now so they can actually push each other into the snow, which is, <laughs> which that's is incredible. Fun. Yeah. So that's been nice. Um, but yeah, lockdown, I mean, it's been extended here in Toronto for another two weeks. So early March, we're hoping that there might be some restrictions le- uh, lifted, but um, uh, other than that, I mean, it's, it's kind of the same, just get at work and, all these Zoom meetings and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. this is a nice treat. Uh, something slightly different, even though it's still on Zoom. It's a, a level up. Yeah, I'm not your boss harassing you about stuff or anything. <laughs> not talking business. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Please and don't start not, harassing us. It's not one of these meetings that we have to sit through for two and a half, three hours where you don't actually say very much you just listen to other people talk and then you know it kind of goes on and yeah if we did have a conversation where we never actually said anything that would be like a death sentence for the podcast so couldn't do that (laughs) (laughs) um so speaking of the podcast and uh, harassing you guys with questions so the two of you have very recently had something in common in fact someone in common so who's that uh jack if you want to answer first yeah, of course. And I think, I mean, in in my situation, it relates very much to the snow we just mentioned as well. Um, so I recently co-translated a book by, well, not recently now, but a book by Li Juan, um, a Han Chinese author um, who lives in the northwest of China. Um, and Christopher, I, I imagine more recently, you translated a different book by Li Juan. Yeah, it, it's... It's both recent and, and feels not recent, but I think that's because time has kind of taken on a, a weird hue over these last this last year. So I actually did it um, before kind of COVID hit. It was in the run-up to Christmas of, we're in what, 2021? So run-up of Christmas of 2019. 
Mm. Um, and that was when it was kind of, I guess, more or less finished. Um, and then we, then of course, the whole process of getting it ready and, and there were delays, of course. I think the original plan was for it to be out earlier. Um, mm. And then that kind of got scuttled as things shut down and, and all of that type of stuff. So it's been both kind of near and distant. And I guess that makes sense. It's distant sunflower field. So <laughs> there's the distance that's there, right? Um, but yes, it's also by Lee Jen, of course. And it's um, about her lived experience in, in the, the northwest of China. So it's it's similar. She's not a, a fiction writer, um, but it's, I guess it's creative nonfiction because it's not solely like essays that are just, you know, descriptive or, or so on. They're very much narrative essays. Um, so yeah, I kind of call it creative nonfiction, which is probably a misnomer, but um, you know, that's, that's my take on it. And it's, I, you know, it'd be interesting, Jack, I'm not sure if you can try and assign a genre label to it. <laughs> I mean, Astra House, who the publisher of mine and Yen Yen's translation, translation Yen Yen being the, the co-translator, um, he's the editor of Astra Quarterly, which is the mm -hmm. publishing house's little magazine slash journal that will be starting soon. Um, they marketed it as memoir. Um, and I think there is a, there's a strong feeling of memoir in there, but I think she does take some create, I mean, it's her work. So take as much creative license as she likes. Um, but she does take maybe some creative license with, um, with facts and things like that. You know, it's hard to know how much of a reliable narrator she is, mm -hmm. um, which only makes it a more interesting story yeah. uh, but again yeah also based in the northwest of china and xinjiang um although in a different area of the um province um and written earlier than distant sunflower field so winter pasture yeah. was released in the early early aughts is that 2012 how yeah um and then distant sunflower fields is 2017 is it that's right okay yeah, so I mean, it's it's been interesting reading um, distant sunflower fields, and I mean, I think we'll talk about this more later. But catching some of the same themes coming up and the same kind of mm -hmm. ideas, um, and seeing what they're like after a few years of of development. So when mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I, I know Angus is the host, but when did you translate um, uh, Winter Pasture? Oh, sorry, a si similar story to to you really so early 2019 i think okay. now was when i submitted um the original translation and then that was for a different publishing house um which didn't quite exist at that time um it was what meant to be their opening book and this has become the opening book for um astra house um but they were under a different name and a different company um and then as they changed um, the book took on changes. So Yen Yen came in and um, was involved. So originally it maybe had a bit more of an English feel to it, a British English feel to it. Mm -hmm. um, and Yen Yen came in, um, changed the, the English a little bit, also refined it a little bit. This is my first full length translation. So it was really helpful being able to work with someone um, who's a bit more experienced. And we had some back and forth um, and he was originally meant to be the editor, but he came on board as the translator when another editor at Astra House was um, given the role. Um, so it's, yeah, as well, quite a complex kind of back and forth story, like your own, lots of delays, but 
it's yeah. good to have it out soon in two days. Yeah, cool, right? That's true. 23rd, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so we should say this. We're recording this on the 21st of February. Um, oh. but the episode's going to be coming out <laughs> a wee while later. So we've got, well, we've got a five, well, a five-year gap between the original Chinese editions. We've got gaps in time with the English translations. And even with this episode, we're dealing with a gap in time. So we hope you're all, you listening, are feeling thoroughly confused. <laughs> Apologies, I forgot about the time travel yeah. of the internet for a second. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, well, COVID time travel too. I mean, that's that's been the other aspect of yeah, it. The COVID time time tunnel. Um, getting back to reality, I'm going to pursue my previous line of questioning. Um, so what sets Li Zhuan apart from other Chinese writers? I mean, we maybe have a, some clues in what you've already said, but what else can we say? I'm, I think, I mean, one of the aspects, I guess, that sets her apart is that she writes, it's not straight up fiction, um, it, memoirs or creative nonfiction or whatever you wish to call it. I mean, the, the, the bulk of material that's translated into English from the Chinese tends to be fiction. So you have authors like Yuhua and Moyan and that type of thing. So that sets her apart. I mean, remember with my publisher, they, they have kind of two sides. Sinoist is their fiction side and ACA does the more nonfiction side. And I remember the editor initially, um, I have wonderful e- editor I work with, Matthew Keeler, and he said, this would be ACA, not Sinoist, but it's come out with Sinoist. Yeah. So <laughs> that's, you know, that one of those aspects. So I think that's a distinguishing feature for her. Um, and then I think I like her economy of language. I, th- I, I like her style of writing. That's, that's what appeals to me a great deal. Um, and she's, I feel at least reading it, there's, there's that directness that you maybe don't get as much with other Chinese authors. Um, I've worked on other translations and so on. And I find that that's one thing that stuck out to me about Li Zhen's style is that economy of language. And to me, I find, I don't know, maybe this is, Growing up in North America, um, I I get a feel of Ernest Hemingway from her work, and and that kind of straightness, directness. The language is there, but there, it's really full of meaning. That you have that kind of the possibilities that come out of it, um, and maybe that's maybe just a strange comparison. But I think of Hemingway's kind of not travel literature, but I mean, obviously he traveled a lot and had all of these overseas experiences and that's incorporated into his writing. Um, and I just uh, had that feel with Lija. And maybe Jack will be like, wait, I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> but I mean, it'd be interesting to hear your take, Jack, on what distinguishes her. I've never thought of Hemingway um, reading her, um, but I, I suppose in a way, the way she uses ellipses is a very... Um, tip of the iceberg Hemingway style of writing where a lot of her she's very humorous um, in Mm. both of the books she's a very funny writer and a lot of at least in Winter Pasture um, and I'm starting to get the feel that it's the same in Distant Sunflower Fields that she uses ellipses a lot to uh, imply the punchline and so there's a lot of kind of humor of omission there um, waiting while she sets something up and then in the Chinese in the English we actually removed a f- quite a few of the ellipses 
Um, but she sets up the joke and then lets you in your own head kind of do the, the dum dum um, so there's definitely an economy of, of language in that sense. Um, I've not thought of Hemingway in other ways uh, with her <laughs> writing. Um, maybe, I mean, that could be that I'm not well enough read in on Hemingway. Uh, I don't know my Hemingway that well, but it doesn't have a bit of a, like an alcoholic tough guy reputation. And that doesn't really sound like Lee Drawn. <laughs> but, it, it, but no, not Lee Drawn herself, but certainly her, her mother. That right. comes across <laughs> as this, <laughs> it, of a this tough character. I mean, riding on her motorcycle through these, <laughs> you know treacherous terrains, um, stripping down naked to work on the fields because it's too hot. Um, yeah, there, there is the suggestion. There's, there's drinking in distant sunflower fields as well. She writes. There's one part where she's hiding booze underneath their bed because they don't want to share it and things like that. So maybe that's where I got it. It's it's the old man in the sea, right there. <laughs> All you need is some bodies of water to to have fun with, I suppose. And then there is that moment when she rides into Paris on the jeep and outs the Germans with her shotgun over her shoulder. <laughs> that's a Hemingway story, in case. Just in case anyone was getting excited. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, that's the creative nonfiction part, remember? Mm. That's <laughs> <laughs> the artistic license right there. Yeah, I should um, probably say as well, this is the translated Chinese fiction podcast, but I do sometimes make exceptions and do uh, poetry or a little bit of nonfiction. Um, but one of the only other nonfictions we've had on the show was San Mao's Stories of the Sahara. And like, I know Lee Juan herself isn't too keen on this connection, which is fair enough, but like someone with a very idiosyncratic style going out into the desert and writing memoir dispatches with a strong sort of creative inflection. Like I could be describing Sama or, or Lee Juan there. So do you guys have any thoughts about that? Especially since Sama Stories of the Sahara also came out pretty recently. Mm, in Eng in I English, I mean. I can appreciate the connection. It, it feels, um, it was interesting to very to see Lee Juan speak a few weeks ago um, at an event that Christopher was involved in, actually. Um, and like you said, Angus... She doesn't like this comparison. So, yeah, this is so <laughs> herself from the comparison. Um, and I, I completely understand that. I feel like their personalities are so different. Kind of yeah. the lumping of them together is... To me, seems a little bit like a publishing um, ploy. Yeah, like I said, they're both quirky, but quirkiness exists in many different dimensions. Exactly, and I think they they look they have such different ways of looking at the world um, and going about their adventures. Um, Lidran, in many ways, almost seems like a kind of a reluctant. Sometimes, with how little she's enjoying the the time um, mm -hmm. that she's having, at least in winter pasture, because it is. She, she's there during the winter as the title suggests and it's harsh harsh times um she's not always enjoying herself necessarily whereas there is something a little bit more swashbuckling about um about sanma i do think lee Duan's, um she to a degree she because of its being creative non-fiction and slightly memoiristic it re does remind me of sanma in that sense but she also reminds me of um shi tie sheng um, a little bit also like a very good um, Sanwen writer like prose essay writer um, mm. 
And I think even though, again, their personalities are very different, equally, if publishing houses wanted to, they could make that comparison. Yeah, um, well, yeah, I mean, that's I would agree with those comments for sure. And I think that the comparison is probably derived more from the publishing houses in terms of how they wish to market things. Um, and, and I remember translating Maitya with Olivia Milburn and then the publishing houses compare him to John le Carre. And I'm just kind of like, yeah, I don't see that comparison at all. <laughs> um, but I guess it's a way for you to help sell books. Yeah, there, there might be some other spy author who's a better fit, but what spy author's names have currency apart from John McCarran, probably. Yeah. Almost none for the general public. Um, I guess there's another possible San Mao connection you could make in that San Mao's living among, uh, I guess, basically a colonized people of the desert, the um, Saharan people, and San Mao's among the Kazakhs, but we'll get more into that uh, later. Here's another... <coughs> Another question about Lidron herself. We were kind of getting into this, and that's her personality. I was going to ask you, it's pretty inescapable. Like, you can't separate her personality from, from these books. It's, um, yeah. It's, what do you, and how, how did you guys find that translating her, trying to translate her personality into English? Uh, Jack, do you want to go first? Okay. Is this is this more difficult to navigate now that there's two of us? I had this problem. I don't know if it showed up, but in the episode with um, Yanga and Jeremy Tiang, I'd it didn't occur to me I need to prompt someone to go first. Otherwise, it, like everyone's trying to be no you first, no you first, no you first. or or everyone's just like I don't want to go first, and then I have to edit out the silence and keep it sounding natural. So yeah, I'm just arbitrarily picking someone. So. So it's it's my ter- stereotypical Canadian politeness that I'm always going to go second. <laughs> and we're from the UK. We're not much better, I think. Mm, yeah, there's that joke of the. Uh... Never mind, actually. <laughs> Cut that bit out, please, Angus. It's a whole story, otherwise. Okay. Apologies. Right. So we draw personality and translating it. Anyone got any thoughts? So it's interesting that you bring it up because I think in terms of translating it, um, for me, the way I got the translation work was I submitted a sample after a publisher asked for samples from different translators. Mm. Um, and the publishing house liked the sample because they liked the voice that I'd given to Lee Juan. Um, and I think, and, but with a sample, you're only translating one short extract um, and in that sample, there was one kind of particular voice that Li Juan had. Um, and it was maybe, it was a little bit, it was more her humorous voice. Um, and there was a little oh, yeah. bit of slapstick in there. And she's not just a humorous writer. There are so many layers and multiple voices to her writing. Um, that As I went along, I was maybe missing some of the other layers of her writing. Um, and only noticed them on returning to the work later and doing later drafts um, and talking with Yen Yen about it. Um, because she really is... I mean, it was interesting to then meet her the, uh, briefly online and see that how she writes is her. Um, in real life, she was exactly kind of as I expected mm. her to be after reading the both of the books. Mm. Um, and she writes 
so honestly about herself. Um, I'm not sure how I could how to pin down her personality though. Christopher, you do you have any kind of umbrella words? <laughs> I yeah no, I've been trying to kind of think think of something, but I think it's that honesty that came out in the voice mm. that that I experienced in in reading it. I mean, it was Distant Sunflower Fields was the I know the rights were bought by Sinois, and then they approached me about doing it. Um, so I didn't do a sample or anything like that. And I remember getting into it and starting it. And then, I don't know, probably about, I don't know, several chapters in, they're very short chapters to start with, but then several chapters in, I remember kind of going back and redoing all of the first ones because mm. her voice came out in a clearer way as I got further in. Um, and it's that humor that's there. And I think there's also this, yeah, the, the honesty that's there in, in kind of relaying what life is like and the, 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 the difficulties of trying to eke out an existence there. And, and for me, what struck most with Distant Sunflower Seeds was the environmental commentary that's in mm. places um, throughout, the, uh, throughout the, the, the volume. And she talks about the waterways and, and how they struggle and how everybody is reliant on them. She talks about the difficulties of getting the sunflowers planted and growing. And then, you know, you have this blanched earth and these types of things. So I think there was, yeah, that honest kind of environmental reckoning that I suppose is there. Mm. Yeah, she pulls no punches, definitely, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of saying what she's seeing. Um, I mean, she's not she doesn't give anyone a dressing down in in either of the books i'm i'm she's not there to criticize necessarily but um she doesn't kind of sugarcoat anything no. um whether that's her own feelings or whether that's what she's seeing unfold in front of her and sometimes that's even just uncertainty as well being honest about her lack of understanding of a situation um in winter pasture she's spending a lot of time with Kazakhs and she starts off treating it like a kind of anthropological, even though not in a, not a formal kind of anthropological uh, exercise, but you know, she's set out to try and understand the Kazakh people um, and how she relates to them. Um, and at parts in the book, uh, especially towards the end, I mean, like D distant sunflower seeds, the book is divided into short sections. So in one of the later sections, she kind of admits to yeah not really having a way in um mm -hmm. and saying i'm you know this isn't my this isn't my job really i'm i'm a writer as opposed to kind of a, an academic or anything like that and it's it takes a lot of courage to admit that in the book that you're writing mm. yeah there's a new york times article i'm going to quote from later um but trying to figure out what's her personality or her writing ethos reminded me of one little thing she's quoted as saying in the, the article. It's by Eric Abrahamson, by the way, a former guest on the show. Um, so he quotes her having said, where are we? Yes. So she says, my attitude has always been, don't refuse, but don't participate. And that leads me into my next question about her attitude or her reputation that I've heard for being a little bit of a recluse or a little bit removed. And that was while you guys were doing the translations, did you have much contact with her or did you only get some contact or communication with her like more, more recently, like you were saying over things like Zoom? 
Um, for me, it was, yeah, more recently. I didn't mm. really have any contact with her prior to that. Um, some of it has to do with where she spends a lot of her time. Um, and so there's less chance of having avenues of contact. I mean, there's sections in distant sunflower fields where her mom kind of is out in the fields and, and trying to get to higher ground to get a mobile connection and signal and stuff like that. So I imagine there's probably challenges there. Um, so I really didn't speak to her until we had this event a couple of weeks back and had a chance to actually hear her, her talk and, and the little speech that she did to kind of reflect on her writing. Um, Mm. And I thought, I mean, that became one of the issues we talked about. This is the question of gender and stuff like that. And she, you know, commentaries about why doesn't she sound or read more like a woman? And she's kind of like, well, I never just never really thought of that. Like I just write. And I thought that was really an honest thing to say, like admitting I'm not an academic. I'm not here to participate. I mean, that goes back to that age old question of ethnographical studies about the participant and the observer and all of these questions that we Mm. could could probably spend an entire day on. Um, But it was interesting for her to make that, that acknowledgement. I'm not an academic, I'm a writer. Um, And then she, you know, honestly just says, I write about what I know. And I guess that's what every writer is told to do, right? Write what you know. Yeah. I don't know what else to add there. I mean, it was, it was wonderful speaking to her. I don't know if it would have made, any difference in the translation had I spoken to her beforehand because I think she pretty much puts everything out on the page um so I'm not sure if I would need to ask her like okay what are you getting at here type of thing how can I better understand this because I think it was all there on the pages um certainly of distant sunflower fields same as you Christopher I only had only met her the once during the event that you were involved with with Jeremy Tian and Yenge um, which Ang- well Angus who just, whom Angus just mentioned but not different event obviously this, yes. that was for your podcast and besides that I had a, a brief interaction with her via a stopgap for um, she had a friend read through the manuscript and kind of give a stamp of approval but also say um there was there were one there were two sections I remember where we, we'd not quite captured the the full meaning um, of what she was portraying. So it was helpful to have her weighed in then and direct us in the right way. Right. So we, I think we sufficiently covered Lijuan. Now let's go on to the books themselves. So on on reading the blurbs, you might think they're very similar books, but like my feeling as a reader was. They're pretty different. Maybe one reason would be you both have different styles as translators, like off the top of my head. Uh, Christopher, you preserve more of the ellipses in distant sunflower fields. Um, so maybe maybe the syntax is closer to the original syntax or something. But aside from like the differences in the translation, I think just like the setting, the characters, what exactly Li Juan's doing in the books is pretty different between the two. So my next questions are just all about differences we can point out or themes in the books and how we can compare and contrast. Uh, So first one is the idea of family. How's family present in each book? Uh, Christopher, do you want to go first? Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the certainly in distant sunflower fields, the family is, is the unit that she's really talking about. Um, I mean, one of the differences with winter pasture, I guess would be there's a lot more discussion of her interaction with um, the Kazakh peoples that she's living around and with and and distant sunflower fields is more about 
her the land and her immediate family with her her mum and her grandmother and the uncle slash surrogate father who's not really there and so on and so forth. So yeah, it's a different. That's certainly a, a, something that struck me as I was reading through uh, Winter Pastures and stuff. And it's that different angle, I guess, that she's taken. Um, and maybe that has to do with the, the five years in between the writing of both of them. That there's almost this element of revisiting things, but revisiting them in such a way to, to in distant sunflower fields, certainly that kind of personal aspect, I guess, personal narrative that I feel is maybe a bit stronger. I don't know if that's the best way to describe it. Um, I mean, both of them are really personal. <laughs> I guess it's just that more her her family, her mom and her mom's kind of perseverance of trying to get these fields to actually grow. Um, and, and you know, the, the pets, I guess, the, should mention the two dogs yes. that she has, <laughs> right? The, 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 sh- the shoe-stealing bigger dog um, and then the small kind of mangier one that... Uh, <laughs> spent time with her in the, in the flat that she had as well when she was off of the fields yeah. um, and these types of things. So and the ducks and the rabbits and the, ducks and the, and chickens. the chickens and, and so on and so forth. The, the menagerie that they, they live with in this, you know, um, hole in the ground. I think I described it once because that's kind of how she described it uh, when they're living in the fields. So yeah, there's, there's that element. Uh, at least that's how I've, found the family in distant sunflower fields it's that more immediacy of it um in the sense that it's that those as closest to her i suppose yeah it's like the blood relations or whatever word you'd use for it uh jack how about family in uh, winter pasture quickly before i say about family i've not reached the point in um distant sunflower fields yet where uh, <laughs> she described the flat that she lived in outside of the the fields i'm excited to to get to that bit because there is a brief mention of it in winter pasture too toward the end Uh, and her being snowed in in that flat and kind of how she navigates going to the toilet and things like that when the toilet is i think it's an outhouse potentially or maybe it's because the pipes are frozen or something like that um but there's a the the flat features uh, a little bit, so I'm excited to get some more stories about that flat. Well, it's yeah. a little bit with her grandma, actually, probably mostly for the flat oh, okay. and the difficulties that her grandma has in losing her way, and not to give things away, but she does like markers to try and kind of figure out how to navigate around the town and stuff. <laughs> um, and and yeah, so it's it's me. I won't I won't give it away, <laughs> but okay. it's a neat experience. So Jack, I won't push you for spoilers. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you've not you've not reached the part where her mom makes clothes for the chickens. Uh, I don't believe so. That's my favorite bit. That's amazing. Okay, okay, I'll keep my eyes peeled for that. I unfortunately couldn't put it on my Kindle, so I've had to be reading it on my computer, which is um, like extra slow reading for me. But like you said, Christopher, the uh, the parts are so short that you can yeah. dip in and out of it really. It, like little bookmarks in your day just like slip in and and have a read and that's been been really nice but yeah family in winter pasture sorry slight tangent there in a similar way it's 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 kind of everything in the book um but just in a a different sense in that the family that she is living with is the main cast of characters um and how they interact with each other is almost all of the I mean, there isn't 
that much. There is, I guess, it doesn't rely on the narrative structure of like dramatic tension necessarily. The book because it is creative <laughs> nonfiction. She's not creating a this um, kind of tragic storyline or anything like that. But it's they not are Bajin's, Bajin's family, right? <laughs> the family <laughs> trilogy. <laughs> exactly. She's just kind of pointing out their um, their day to day, the idiosyncrasies of their day to day, and um, really weaving some fascinating stories out of that but they are everything um in the book and mm. like in distant sunflowers fields the family is extended um it's beyond this first family that she lives with which, who are the i've been calling them the tumas but i don't know whether they would be the tumas or the kumas spelled c-u-m-a um which was um juma in chinese right and in that family, there is Juma or Tuma and sister-in-law, um, who is Tuma's wife. And so sister-in-law is a term of endearment that Li Juan uses throughout. Um, so Salza. And then there's Kama, who's their daughter. And then there is Jada, who is the son and who uh, arrives a little bit later um, out, of out of school term time. Um, and then there is, a so she's living with that family in their earthen burrow. Um, which is something that the Kazakh herders live in um, during their time in the winter pastures, which are slightly further south than the um, autumn or fall pastures and spring pastures and summer pastures. And the summer pastures are right up in the heavenly mountains or the Tianshan mountains. Um, so there are nomadic peoples and Li Juan has followed them to the winter pasture where they herd sheep um, and keep livestock and it's this one family that I've just described, along with their neighbours who are new to joining uh, Tuma's family this year, this season. Um, and that family is Shinshibek, Saina, and their daughter, um, young, young daughter, Kaligash. Um, and then there, and then two other children uh, who are Ramathan and Nursalash. Um, Nursalash is referred to as uh, Nurgun throughout. And I'm likely butchering all of those names so i apologize to anyone who speaks kazakh those are a very yorkshire version of all of the names uh, and there's there's kurumash as well who is um the neighbor shinshibek's brother so there are quite a lot of characters um but then there's the extended family of like in distant sunflower sea fields the cat plum blossom um so named because of uh, a moment of uh spray can um, animal abuse, I think it's abuse. called. <laughs> yeah, animal abuse. I was going to say spray can abuse, but it is just outright animal abuse. Um, yeah, the then, spray can was fine. Yeah. And then Panda Dog, who is a dog with um, uh, pat, white and black patchy fur. Um, and then also the livestock, so the camels, the cows, the sheep, goats, and horses. Um, and a few of them kind of features star characters as well, but they, they have their own little sections, but... That's another difference. Larger animals in winter pasture. I think most oh. of the animals mm -hmm. in Distant Sunflower were smaller animals. Yeah, you're right. Yep. Herd animals. Kind of just struck me and listening. It's actually funny, um, Jack, listening to you, because I just... I, it's a very old movie um, by Tian Zhuang Zhuang um, the, on the hunting ground. I don't know I'm if you're familiar... Yet. Mm -hmm. um, Lia Chang Cha Sa, I think is the, the Chinese name for it. But that was uh, this it, uh, a pseudo documentary film about the herders 
up in that area and mm-hmm. and you know their lived experience of, of of moving back and forth over different areas as as along with the weather right the the that nomadic experience and and that, I don't know why you were just listening to you describe uh, this that that kind of popped into my mind as as this lived experience it's an old film right it's 1980 something i think is that um, are they also kazakh herders i i'm trying to remember if they were kazakh herders or mongolian herders i can't I, it was a long time ago. It was, you know, undergraduate years when you're all learning about the fifth generation directors and and so on. And Tian Zhuang Zhuang was one of them. And and this one, I think it's it's you know it was talked about because the the hunting of the the elk is actually real in the film. So they can't put like no animals were abused in this filming. It's actually they're hunting. I mean, he did clips of it. It's so it's. It's a film, but it, it splices in documentary footage. And that was wow. kind of Tian Zhuang Zhang's kind of call to fame at the time. I wonder if we should take a step back here for anyone who's listening, but isn't like an expert on all of China's different provinces and ethnicities. Mm-hmm. So like Xinjiang, I guess probably most people listening know where Xinjiang is, but if you don't, it's like almost a, what is it, almost a quarter of China on the map. It's a very large area in China's northwest. And although it's, I guess, most famous for being home to the Uyghur minority, it's home to a lot of ethnic, China's, a lot of ethnic minorities who live in China and plenty of, or at least some of them, like the Kazakhs, have a sort of a home nation that I don't think we've explicitly said that's sort of what Li Zhuan is famous for as a writer is li- writing of her experiences living among them either among them like in uh, winter pasture or in an area which is what are they called a special autonomous uh, county or whatever so distant mm-hmm. sunflower fields although we're uh, we're with a Han author living in with her Han Chinese family they're in a county which is designated under I don't know the Ch- by the Chinese government as a special Kazakh area and this leads into my next question. It's how, how are the, the, the Chinese Kazakhs present and, and their way of, way of life, how are they present in each book? Because I guess this, this is something that's come up on the show before, how especially F- Chinese ethnic minorities in the North have a different, often have an older way of life than other, well, than us, us modern people, but also the modern Han people who are living you know, like us, nine to five jobs for a salary in a city or something like that. I mean, I say that in the in the era of era of COVID, but these are hurting people. A little bit like the hurting people I was talking about in the episode. Oh gosh, what was it called? Last quarter of the moon with uh, Bruce Humes talking mm-hmm. about the Evenki. They are hurting people from the far northeast, and here we are in the far northwest, also talking about herders. So. Yeah, just just to restate the question, what can we say about the Kazakh people and their way of life in each book? Uh, Jack, do you want to go first? <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, the book gives some really detailed insights into the moment-to-moment life of the herding Kazakhs. Obviously, during it's only it's during one season, so it's set in winter, um, and how they yeah go about their daily lives. Um, I was having a conversation with Austin Werner recently 
the translator of Invisible Valley, um, and he reminded me of a scene where sister-in-law is grilling one side of a nan, a nan bread, uh, which is one of the foods mm. that the Kazakhs um, eat. And when it's time to turn over, she kind of says, in the time it takes for the second side to cook, sister-in-law could embroider a two-inch long yellow ram horn, and the ram, a ram horn being one of the patterns that they, um, the Kazakhs embroider on one of their many kind of textiles, which is one of their biggest kind of uh, products, I guess, um, both integral to ways of life and for selling as, I guess, cultural um, commodity. Um, but just that kind of, just that single scene, you get such an insight into what the daily life of the Kazakhs is, of a Kazakh woman specifically, is like um, in the pastures. And there are myriad moments of that, really detailed descriptions of the particular herding practices, um, like how to make a whip. Um, and she really goes into a lot of detail. But there's the, um, there is the oft quoted um, in a few reviews of Winter Pasture that have come out, and I think also on the Paper Republic site in the bio for Li Juan, she's quoted as talking about Yuhakex Hermanbeck, who is a Kazakh writer um, in China, um, who writes in Chinese um, as well, and how Yuhakex was a big inspiration to Li Juan for making her realize that she is Han Chinese and that describing all of these sites and scenes, she's always the outsider. And I think that's a really important part of the book, uh, that she's standing on the sidelines looking in. And so you get all of these really detailed descriptions of the Kazakhs and you do learn a lot about the Kazakh way of life. Uh, but it is always from the perspective of an outsider, which maybe adds an extra dimension to it. I don't know. Um, is, is it different in distant sunflower fields? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say it is it's quite different. You don't see them or you don't encounter descriptions of Kazakhs in the sense of carving horns or, or the, the live reality of them. There is one chapter where she talks about names um, and she talks mm -hmm. about how they've taken on, you know, there would be, they would have the certain, um, the same suffix that would be given to all of them, but then they would have names like revolutionary Guli. Uh, they would have, uh, bomb and Guli, and they would have tank Guli, and all of this was because they were born in and around the the period of the Cultural Revolution, and so this is the mid 1960s and stuff, and it was the the spread of of that revolutionary fervor and and the idea of overthrowing the old and and building something new, right out with the old and in with the new, as 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 the the, the idea was, and this kind of separation from the past. And so though you have all these interesting names, you know, the only one that's missing is capitalist running dog type of thing <laughs> as, as a name. But so you don't, it, it's a different experience that you have with the Kazakhs in distance on flower fields. I felt that I didn't see as much by way of description of their lived reality, but it goes that's back true. to this question of herders and stuff and mixing between, you know, the, the, I guess to use for the lack of other words, pre-modern and modern um, mm. that you mm. do you have and that existence. And then it, it's reminded me of um, the, the description of uh, the Mongolian peoples in Wolf Totem by Jiang Rong mm. and yeah. that kind of Han Chinese going up there and experiencing it 
and and he described you have an older generation that still holds on to the older ways you have this intermediate i guess the people born during the revolution who are are embracing all of this and and trying to modernize as much as possible and then you have a younger generation that's looking a little bit more back to the past and and trying mm-hmm. to hold on to these things at, because they see the the destruction of the modern world um, yeah, i felt like in distant sunflower fields you had to more sort of read between the lines to get a sense of what's going on with the kazakhs and mm-hmm. maybe their relations with the han nation i remember that it's mentioned that lidron's father-in-law goes around taking advantage of a local custom that if a guest or possibly a man shows up he has to be fed and it's mentioned that he's i think we know from context he's a bit of a shitbag but he's just going around getting free meals off of these people who we know are kazakhs so there's that and then there's maybe a more complicated character i remember i think she's called big red flower yeah or some or great red flower yeah something i i think it's yeah, Great Red Flower, that's the one that she meets in the bus station, isn't it? I remember yeah. correctly. I, is she, she's Kazakh, if I remember right. Yes. I think she, she's, a, she's a local woman. She's a bit of a, I don't know, she's rather strange. She, uh, she's Kazakh, but she always wears a very long red, I think it's red, chipao, but it's also very disheveled and it doesn't really fit her. And her home's a bit of a mess, but she's one of the best farm workers. And then it's just little snippets like that where you're like, oh, this is an interesting world we runs in. Whereas in um, uh, Winter Pasture, it's really all about a Kazakh family and their their way of life. And there is stuff about their interactions with like the wider nation, like things like subsidies and policies. Mm-hmm. But they're there at the front. You don't have to read between the lines. Yeah, it's inter- you've, I mean, you've both spoken to it a little bit as well one thing that I think becomes really apparent from winter pasture is the, um, uh, the internal contradiction or like the interplay of the two generations of it. I mean, it, it sounds different from the, uh, from wolf totem that you just described a second ago, Christopher, because in, in winter pasture, the youth um, are very much like they have their, their sights set on the city um, mm. and the bright lights of modern living. The, yeah, the bright lights of modern living. Um, and they, when they return to the winter pasture um, in their school holidays, they're all dressed in new threads, um, which are entirely not suitable for being out herding. Um, <laughs> and they have their eyes on, um, like Jadar wants to be originally wants to be a car mechanic and then wants to fix computers. Um, and that, and you can see this kind of trajectory of life moving away from the older ways and the traditions, Mm -hmm. which the parents are still very much living and still very much want their children to carry on, although they're torn because there's an awareness of the opportunities that are presented by, for example, Jada going off and becoming like a computer repair person or, or something else to do with computers. Um, and Kamar as well, uh, who's the daughter of the main family. Very, a very shy um, young woman who spends her time on the pastures and often um, talks to Li Juan about you know, wanting a boyfriend or wanting to find a husband and missing out on a lot of opportunities to do this because she's in the pastures. 
mm-hmm. um, and she's not in the local town or village, which even though that local town or village isn't a big modern city, it's still relative to what the life they're living in the pastures, a much yeah. more, I don't know, I guess modern um, existence. If I was going to contrast it with Wolf Totem, I would say Wolf Totem is very transparently this Han guy projecting what he wants to see onto the Mongols. Very much so. Um, you can see that most when he com- he's trying to parallel the strength and vigor or whatever he's seeing in the Mongols with people from, I don't like the Germanic people of Europe or something. He said, well, they all eat cheese and that's how they conquered the world. And it's like, did you go in thinking that before you started writing? I think you did. Um, whereas Lidron, <laughs> yeah. like goat cheese. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, the that's secret. The fuel of empires. That's the answer to history. It's, uh, <laughs> it's the dairy products. Um, but yeah, I got the sense that Lidron was just taking what she see, saw and either writing about it or writing yeah. about her own inner life and her family and her thoughts. You, one doesn't really get the sense there's, the, there's an agenda or there's blinkers on her eyes. Mm. Yeah, no, for sure. And I didn't mean to imply that whatsoever. Mm, I mean, I. Wolf Totem is, is very transparent. Um, and this idea of the wolf versus the dragon, right? And that the Chinese nation should abandon the dragon, which is this slithery, snakish type of character and embrace the wolf. I mean, he's got an, a, a, a politics that's there. And that's the difference with Li Jian, I think, is that she's just simply describing the lived experience that's there. In, in these areas. And that's really, um, I mean, I thought it was, it was the chapter about them being named after these revolutionary terms. It, it, I thought it was <laughs> hilarious. It's very humorous. And it, it reminded me of this um, Hong Kong University press book about Chinese English in the 50s and 60s of how they taught English at that time. And you have these primers that are going through like all of these revolutionary terms and then, you know, you'd have these stories about how the evil West was this and how you have the, the Soviet Union is that. And, of course, then they become revisionists and so on. And it, just, it was neat listening to those, that the use of those words and that kind of naming filter into these peoples very far removed from, from all of this, right? I mean, of what was happening in the cities in, during the Cultural Revolution and so on. And you get these snippets that filter out into the Northwest. So you have, you know, somebody's called revolutionary. Like, you're kind of like, what? How does that, how does that work as a name? Um, but I, I mean, it was humorous to see that. And I think that's the, the honesty that shows through with Li Jian without the kind of political infrastructure that Jiang Rong mm. certainly had for Wolf Coat. Um, I see the clock is um, moving forward as clocks tend to do. So I'm going to keep <laughs> us moving forward. Um, move on to the section I've titled slightly more vast questions. Um, so the first one, this is probably the elephant in the room. Um, I've kind of hinted at it before. Um, so I'll start by going through the dates because that's pretty important. But yeah, the dates, publication dates. So Winter Pasture came out in the original Chinese in 2012. Distant Sunflower Fields, five years later in 2017. And 2017-18, um, we there were reports in the media, so you can you can go online and read articles about Chinese Kazakhs being sent to camps. So these are the what are they called the mass mass incarceration mass internment camps mass internment. That's the word I'm looking for. The mass internment camps that we've heard about in Xinjiang, where 
not just uh, the Uyghur ethnic minority, but all the sort of Muslim ethnic minorities from Xinjiang, the Kazakhs included, seem to be being sent to in very large numbers. And the stories were in 2017-18 that reports of these were coming out. Chinese Kazakhs were going going to the Kazakhstani government for help, and the Kazakhstan government was denying their existence. Uh, in 2019, the Chinese government allowed 2,000 ethnic Kazakhs to renounce their Chinese citizenship and repatriate to Kazakhstan. Uh, we have a story as well that had the years been different, might have been worryingly relevant to winter pasture, um, but it's worth mentioning. So in 2018, uh, the Chinese government launched a program uh, whose English name would be something like Pair Up and Become Family, where Han Chinese cadres, so like government officials or government-related people, were going to live with Muslim uh, Chinese families. And I guess anyone who watches China news, you regularly see these sort of upsetting, I guess, stories coming out of Xinjiang. So I think we have to kind of deal with this stuff somehow, talking about Li Zhuan's books. But I just want to say to the listeners, um, we're not trying to cast any aspersions on Li Zhuan or say there's anything sinister going on in her writing. Like, like we said, she seems to be the opposite, a really genuine, gentle, I think, person. Mm. Um, but she is a Han Chinese person. Uh, she lives in Xinjiang, today's Xinjiang, and that's what her writing is kind of about, living among the Kazakhs. So we can't ignore the question. But do either of you have any thoughts about this? about the broader, you know, what's going on today. I mean, it's interesting, if I'm okay to jump in, um, it, all of this is post-winter pasture um, that mm. you've kind yeah. of just cited. Yes. But there is a flavour of this um, in winter pasture already, um, which Lijuan kind of skirts around, not in, I don't think for any reason, No, it's no malicious reason, she's not trying to disguise kind of um, this policy that is talked about in the book, um, but I think out of a certain necessity, perhaps for herself as a writer in China, um, although I don't, I don't want to speak for Li Juan, of course, um, but you, you do, she alludes to something um, in the book that is, is, it's never stated explicitly. And I think some people might feel uh, my question, especially with all of the news that you've kind of just talked about now, Angus, like why is this never stated explicitly? Um, and I, I don't think she needs to, or at least I think the way that she deals with it, she makes it very apparent kind of what is happening without um, putting her own foot in it, in, 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 a, in a sense. So there's a policy that's going on, and I, I should have looked up beforehand what it's called, but there is a, a land reclamation um, policy that's being rolled out um, and it's about trying to place the nomadic Kazakhs in these uh, allocated lands for them to farm and keep their livestock there and these are along the Alunga River which features in both of the books um, and they're away from these vast plains where for millennia the Kazakhs have been um, migrating and uh, living their life of transhumance and undisturbed and they've been doing it um, you know in in a way that the reason that they rotate and they travel besides um, staying within weather that is bearable is to give the grass and the, the crops time to regrow um, and then all of a sudden there is this um, policy 
of um, re land reclamation, the reason for this policy being to give the grass, which has now been eaten too close to, to death, a time to grow. Um, and this is a government enacted policy. And there is some discussion between different Kazakhs about how they feel about it and their excitement of, you know, having a stable life for some of them and others feeling like um, it's a, a change that they, they maybe don't want. And Lidron herself never says either way which she thinks is better. Um, but I think mm -hmm. in the, there's a certain point where she really clearly juxtaposes this discussion of how old this tradition of nomadism is um, and uh, nomad farming with saying, and now after millennia, the land has had too much and we must take it back. Um, in order to give an opportunity for it to regrow while the Kazakhs are put in this land where they'll have to fertilize and they'll have to modernize their farming methods. So while none of the above that you talked about, Angus, is going on at the time, I think there is there are definite nods to this trend already um, taking place, um, a quite frightening trend. Um, and it's obviously only become much, much worse. Um, but obviously, go on, sorry. I was just going to say, if we think about when she's writing these and then when they actually right. are published. So, I mean, in terms of our translations, it took a year probably for our, our translations to get out. So we can probably think mm. the same thing with her. So if it's 2012, she probably wrote it, mm. you know, 2010 before it finally came out. And so, again, she's a little bit more removed from it. And 2017 for Distant Sunflower Freeze is yeah, probably right. 2015. So, again, it's before things, I guess, blow up, certainly mm. in the international media. There's the long process of these things starting to happen. I mean, for me, the, the being back in North America, for me, they sound like reservations for mm. First Nations peoples and, and these types of things. And um, in a Canadian context... The, the re-education camps, internment camps, whatever you want to call them, sounds, again, for a Canadian, it's, it's the schools that the government uh, built in the 1960s and, and basically separated First Nations peoples from families and, and sent them off to, to these schools to learn English and, not, and be beaten for speaking your own language and, and, and so on, the residential schools, as they were called in Canada. And, and right now here um, at the University of Toronto, where I'm at now, every meeting and every kind of policy always comes with a land acknowledgement that there is a, a recognition that these lands that the university is on, that those of us who are of settler heritage, um, that this land is not ours, that this is land that belongs to the Algonquin peoples or the other First Nations that once inhabited these areas and still inhabit them and, and so on. And it was interesting when I was translating Distant Sunflower Fields, because it's not a lot in Distant Sunflower Fields, this discussion about these larger issues related to the, the Kazakh people and so on. But it, as Angus said, it's the elephant in the room. It's, it's, it's there in the background and there's the issue of, you know, the, the, the changing of the landscape and stuff. But I think in all of that, that this, this idea that it's, 
the Kazakhs that have over herded or overused the land and thus they need to be put one side in order for the land to be rehabilitated is, is probably the great lie that's perpetuated, right? That, that by the, the central power that they have to come in and take control of things because if we let the locals manage things, they're just going to run it further into the ground. And it's, I find in, in reading this in Sunflower Fields, Legion doesn't bring all of that politics in. Um, at least I don't see it in, in there. And, and that's, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's a, a deliberate choice. Okay. I'm not going to talk about this. I think she's tried to certainly for distant sunflower fields is to keep it on that individual experience. And I think that's, what's probably sometimes missed in, in all of these big discussions that it, you know, Western media is very content to paint everything the same color with one big brush and this is how it is and and the chinese do the same thing with you know whether it's cctv and they're saying this is how it is and and it kind of overlooks the individual lived experiences and i think that's where Li Juan, the kind of westerner or western reader who's like well you know Li Juan didn't reveal and denounce the entire xinjiang and prc government therefore pff, can't be bothered with her that I, that attitude I I can't stand yeah. because it's like what what on earth do you expect? Of, she's not you can't expect every writer to be a dissident writer. You can't expect people to throw their life and their family's lives away. Not everyone is Solzhenitsyn, right? And yeah. and so yeah. on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was watching just last night one of the episodes in the uh, new Adam Curtis series. Uh, I can't get you out of my head, which goes through a British political history, American, Russian, and Chinese this time. I think it's the first time he's touched on China. And they had a clip from an interview I've seen bits of before where it's in the late 80s, I think it's the run-up to um, to Tiananmen, uh, where a BBC journalist is interviewing a Xinhua journalist, and he's basically grilling him on democracy, freedom, rights, and so on. And the Xinhua guy, I don't know, the vibe I get from him, he's just trying to do his job, so he's trying to give as good as he gets, but like the the BBC journalist says something like, are you free to report whatever you want or something? And the Xinhua journalist says, I think I need to uh, go to um, do something. And he just gets up and leaves the room. And my, my girlfriend was watching that with me and she goes, ridiculous. And I was like, well, the system is ridiculous. The man, what was he going to do? Like, what, yeah. what, what, what can we expect of someone who's part of the system who doesn't want to go to jail? I think there's, it's a, this is generally a problem that has seeped into uh, what Chinese literature is published in translation as well and what publishers are attracted to because they think that audiences will buy, readers will want to find out about a lot of this kind of fetishization of the woes of the Chinese people and of um, its history and the, the sufferings and... Um, yeah, it's kind of like a, it's like tragedy porn in a way. A lot of the publishing angle um, for Chinese literature and translation, and I mean, it's refreshing to have to not have that with yeah. Run, Even though you know, I I do think these are topics that need to be discussed, but it's refreshing to not have to have that kind of vibe. Yeah, I mean, it was once upon a time. It was if it if it wasn't dissident literature, mm. then it's not literature, right? It's it's got to be. It's got to be adversarial. It's got to be uh, orientated around protest and so on. And, and that's something that seemed to 
be less of a concern maybe yeah. 10 years ago. Um, I was speaking recently with uh, Jeffrey Wasserstrom from the uh, University of California, and he was talking about these issues and he's written a lot on, you know, Hong Kong and the protests there and so on and so forth. And he made, you know, this note that it was probably around, you know, the, the 2010 when things started to, to change mm. more to this, the, the greater restrictions and stuff. And prior to that, you could have all of this other different kinds of literature coming from China. And then it was, now it's got to be yeah. dissident literature again that, uh, you know, because the, 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 the politics of, of, contemporary china it's got to be dissident or it's nothing i see what you mean yeah <laughs> <laughs> and that's i mean it's it's interesting and it's refreshing that Jin doesn't necessarily mm. fit into that category and you're right jack i mean these are issues that need to be discussed but i think that painting them in big brushes all one color is not the way to discuss them right? that's that's the problem is that everybody just wants to say this is bad and and so on but there, it's a much more nuanced type of situation that that bears much more discussion than probably we can do here (laughs) (laughs) Mm. my feeling this is a a pet theory and after i'm done this i'm just going to zip us on to the next question so that we're not here forever it's that like in the after the cultural revolution there was some leave for a whole wave of offers to write criticism of basically communist policies or calamities in the PRC and not just things that came before it. And those writers are maybe still able to write some books like that, but they're getting older and older and older. So for younger Chinese writers that Western or English language publishers are looking to translate, it seems like the more interesting, and this is just maybe my biased perspective, but the more interesting stuff now is maybe in genre fiction, or maybe it's in Lijuan, people writing about mm-hmm. aspects of life that aren't political. Because even in China, there's plenty of life that politics doesn't touch that would still be interesting to talk about hmm. i mean yen for me yen liang is the only one that gets away with it really still um right. and in i mean very barefaced about it as well you know he's he's in the writers association he's high up he's of a high stature um but i mean there's there is there's there's so much interesting um literature coming out of china that isn't just political and not even not even just genre stuff as well there's there is literary um writing i mean i don't want to make that distinction too heavily there is genre and there's literary and there's it's nothing to do with politics there's there's stuff with magic and robots and there's stuff about no magic no robots (laughs) that's a better distinction (laughs) well just i mean just before moving on though i think that that's a really good point that probably should be stressed that those who came out in the 80s and into the early 90s and stuff like that, who were able to push the boundaries as much, they they have the, the reputation and the connections that they can be more protected yep, yep, than yep. younger authors, certainly mm-hmm. women authors, um, that maybe don't have the same types of protection. Um, so they, they have to navigate a different terrain when it comes to what they write and how they get things published that people like, um, Yan Lienke and, and Jia Pinghua and these older guys who, you know, the, the, I think the PRC government is probably aware enough that, that shutting them down too much will turn martyrs out of them, will turn them into martyrs and that'll make things even more problematic for them. So it's the younger authors that, that yeah. face the brunt. I get the sense that there's a sort of a rebellious, but not too rebellious boys club 
and mm-hmm. it's all of a generate yeah like you said that generation mm-hmm. has had their journey up through the rank and file of the writers association but the the road the avenue they took is now mm-hmm. closed so unless something changes they won't be replaced by an equally rebellious but not too rebellious group yeah. um that sort of leads us on to the next question so i'm going back to this new york times article i said i was going to quote from because it kind of talks about um Li Juan's place in the sort of literary establishment. So I'm going to start. This is a fairly long excerpt, by the way. So here's hoping my voice doesn't crack. Starts here. In highly socialized China, it is hard to imagine any writer being truly antisocial in the sense of being both disconnected from society and, when necessary, downright offensive. Some of the country's greatest literary figures, the poet Li Po, the novelist Tao Xueqin were outcasts, but not by choice. They had been exiled or ignored. Yan Lianke represents one model of resistance, but it is a model that very few writers can follow. Though many of his books have been unpublishable inside China, he retains an uneasy place within the system. His talent cannot be ignored, but his insistence on writing about politically sensitive subjects means that his peers view him with embarrassment. He's almost alone. Even his family wishes he would stop. Then there is Li Juan, who may be as far outside the system as Chinese writers are able to get and still publish. She lives and writes in the Altai region of Xinjiang in Western China, musing on nomadic, nomadic lifestyles and the turning of the seasons. Her literary career has taken what she calls the wild path, wild being traditionally used in Chinese to refer to things outside the establishment. Am I going to keep going? Uh, yeah, I'm going to keep going. She isn't defiant or high-handed. Instead, she seems shy and is given to giggling in public. After a decade of writing in poverty, pitching to magazines and publishing houses, the strength of her writing gradually gained recognition. The success of my writing relies to a certain extent on promotion by mainstream literary circles, she wrote in an email. So I can't claim to be isolated from them, but my attitude has always been, don't refuse, but don't participate. Despite her growing reputation, Li Juan claims to be hopeless at self-promotion. I don't know how to do anything but write. She has little contact with anyone in the literary establishment beside the editors who publish her work. Some colleagues think I'm giving myself airs, but there have been some senior figures who've been willing to speak up for me, and I have to thank them. Li Juan is unfailingly polite, almost self-effacing, except when conversation turns to the craft of writing. Evaluating her own and others' words, Li Juan turns hard, and displays a fixation that calls to mind Yan Lianke's stubborn revisiting of historical subjects. Whatever quality this is, strength of character, disregard for the opinions of others, it is the closest thing China's literary scene has got these days to the spirit of dissent. And um, I think that's pretty cool because we'd stressed before that Li Juan's a fairly gentle character, but we hadn't mentioned, I guess the only time we made her sound tough is when we said how strongly she says that she's not Samao. Um, but yeah, okay. I see Christopher's vanished. Um, um I, oh. no, I'm still oh, here. Okay. I'm uh, busy looking <laughs> for the charging cord <laughs> for my laptop that I stupidly forgot to 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 get um. initially. Um, it's one of the things I keep doing, and I keep telling myself, you know, you really should make sure you have your power cord, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then I don't. Um, so no, I've got it now. So I'm just uh, returning to my seat. I kept my thing on right. so that I could continue okay. to listen. Uh, I just turned off the uh, video so you don't get vertigo watching me no wander problem. around the power. Right, Ed, Jack, I'll point this question to you first then. 
I guess we're not in the Chinese literary scene, so we might just be speculating here, but do you have any thoughts about what Eric Abrahamson's writing about there? I do. Um, I don't know how, how people should take them with a pinch of salt, I guess, for the very same reason that you just said, when I'm not inside the, the Chinese literary scene myself in a direct sense. Um, I mean, it's definitely worth noting that for Li, Li Juan to have reached, attained the stature that she has within Chinese literature and the popularity she has in China um, without being a member of a writer's association um, is very impressive. Um, and I'm, I mean, I hope people will correct me um, if this is wrong, but I, I don't know if there are any other writers at the moment that have a, have achieved that. Um, it, I would love to know who, if if there are. Um, Han Han is kind of an interesting guy. Do you know much about Han Han? Not really. Embarrassing there. Maybe I shouldn't admit that. Mm, he's he's probably about as opposite personality as you can get, but uh, I think he got his break publishing stuff online. I don't think he's mm -hmm. anywhere close to the, uh, what do you call it, the League of Writers, um, but he, he made himself famous. And now he, he's, I don't know how much he writes, but he's got this website called Ego, or One is its English name, and it's sort of like an online platform for writers. So although he's sort of like a bad boy, um, I did do one story from, originally published on Ego in this, on this show. It was Song Am, actually, funnily enough, a Chinese Muslim writer, Song Aman's short story, um, Gongsun's Dreams. And that just read like literary, slightly weird fiction. So that's a guy who's built some kind of an alternative name for himself and platform, but he sort of did it through crass means, I guess, or at least that's where he got his start from. Whereas Li Dran isn't, you know, she's not loading her books up with bad boy antics and sex and stuff. That's mm. playing any cheap tricks. <laughs> no. Song Aman is wonderful. Um, she's got there. She's, there's a story of hers on, um, on Paper Republic, I believe translated by Michelle Dieter. Yep. Um, which is brilliant. Um, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned the internet because perhaps that is perhaps one law, wouldn't you? Perhaps internet writers are the only, I mean, they are a, a big population um, and they are outside of that central society of, of writers. Perhaps they're the only ones. Obviously, Lee Joanne doesn't fit into that category um, mm. and she's not necessarily writing the same things as them. I mean, have you got any thoughts about that, Christopher? Now, I do have something else I want to say, but you go in. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it's it's, it's interesting you bring up authors like Han Han who get their start on the internet, on the internet and the internet literature and stuff. And for me, I'm not a very big reader of Han Han either. Um, it's I, 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 what an updated version of uh, <laughs> that Wang Shuo wrote I mean hooligan literature that's what I find that's, that's yeah, the category I would put it into I think the internet allows you that leeway at least to some extent um, and kind of to operate outside of the literary associations which are enormously powerful but I was my eyes were averted because I just actually got a copy. This was published in 2017. But um, David Wong, a very well-known uh, Chinese literary historian at Harvard, he uh, published the new, what was it called? I'm looking it up again now, the title. It's like this big thousand-page edited volume, uh, A New Literary History of Modern China. 
uh, that came out in 2017. And this is kind of a sequel to um, C.T. Xia's Modern Chinese Literature, uh, The History of Modern Chinese Literature, which of course most people would be familiar with. Um, and in it, there's actually a translation of, an art, of a short essay by Lidre. Oh. Um, as part of this new literary history of China. Um, I will admit I haven't read it yet because I think it comes on page 800 and something of this <laughs> thousand page book, but it's um, suddenly coming into my own translated by uh, Kyle Chernook. Um, and it's a little short little essay about, and it was published right. in 2007. So it's interesting when you think of, Legion operating outside of the writers' associations and stuff, but it's obviously her profile obviously has has kind of been noticed beyond those structures of of kind of control in in the literary domain in China and the the Wentan experience and how that works and 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 so on. Um, so it's fascinating. Yeah, Two thousand seven is a while ago now. Yeah, it's a while ago now. But it's it's. I think that the it, the New York Times article, I mean, that she's operated kind of outside on these margins of things, is is yeah. That article is from 2015, so that's quite a while yeah. ago too. I mean, I, I, I hate to say it, but so it's interesting. I mean, when you think about all of these, the 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 complex matrix that that operates and how influence gets kind of spread around and and who gets acknowledged and who doesn't and where they get acknowledged and so on and so forth is, I mean, that's another podcast right there, right? <laughs> at, at least. There is, there is an, in terms of Li Duan's yeah. distance from, from it all, there is an interview somewhere on, online, perhaps on YouTube, um, probably from around a similar time to the um, New York Times article, maybe a year or two before that. So not that similar. A lot can happen in two years um, where she's talking about, mm -hmm her own reading oh, very true. Point, case in point in this past three years um she's talking about her reading habits um and i can't remember specifically the books that she says she reads but she um definitely distances herself from a lot of contemporary literature she, she basically says she that she doesn't actually read that much um and what she does read is not to do with the current literary scene um, so she's seems quite happy to kind of remove herself from that. Yeah, respect Good yeah. for her. Here is a question about you guys, basically, um, and it's going back to the, the Kazakh people and Xinjiang as well. So did either of you, and I, I kind of know the answer here, but did either of you have to go sort of above and beyond what a normal Chinese to English translator would do coming up against, coming up against sounds a bit oppositional, but encountering words words in Chinese which are translations themselves from Kazakh that other translators wouldn't bump into and if you did uh, how did you how did you handle them um, Christopher do you want to go first um, I, it, it, I mean I've mentioned it before it was probably the really the only biggest challenge was the names of certain places right. and then certain peoples um, I had to go in and and look up I'm, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of it. The Bek, Bekia Hamet is one of the names that's kind of used um, for a lot of the characters in this, this chapter. And then afterwards, when, whenever they pop up. Um, so that was trying to find the right 
romanized form because <laughs> we're not writing it in Cyrillic and, and uh, we're not going to use pinyin because I don't think that would be the appropriate way of doing it. Just pinyin, uh, you, you know, use the, the Chinese uh, form of the phonetic alphabet for it. So I looked at, you know, looked that up to try and figure out how to get it. And I think the Y has this like uh, underspace that the line goes just through the, the little bit of the Y uh, but thankfully, the publisher was happy doing the 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 unusual script with it, so that was great. But I mean, beyond that, yep. um, I don't. There wasn't much by way of difficulties other than kind of geographical names and trying to find the right form in the Roman alphabet. Yeah, that was probably the biggest challenge. But three three cheers for fonts that uh, use Unicode and can incorporate thousands and thousands of different mm. alphabets. Yeah, well, I mean, because once upon a time, they wouldn't, right? They would mm. want it anglicized as much as yeah. possible um, type of thing. So it was nice that we didn't have to do that. So it does kind of stay as close to it. And then I think using Pinyin wouldn't have been correct either um, for for these yeah. Kazakh speakers and stuff. I mean, there's some uh, mention made a couple of times in the book about the, the, the Kazakh young herders who don't speak Chinese very well. Um, and, you know, it would, I think that's, that's fine, right? There's no reason that they should necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes any sense. Yeah, okay. And Jack? Uh, I mean, we, Yanyan and I came up against similar problems in the sense of the names um, for both the characters and the places and transliterating them from Chinese into a kind of some Romanized form or even into the Kazakh form was was difficult just using Google. Um, so I contacted around through, I can't remember exactly how I managed to get in touch with him now, um, but a Chinese to Kazakh translator called Altenbeck Gula, who is credited in the, the front of the book, um, and we had some back and forth uh, where I'd sent him any Kazakh phrase in a long list. And he gave me the, and, and some context as well where it was necessary. And he gave me the Kazakh spellings um, of them, it, the Romanized mm-hmm. Kazakh spellings, so not the Cyrillic spellings. Um, and unfortunately, there are a few examples where um, some of the words have, for example, an I. I don't know. I'm unsure what the name of this uh, letter is, but an I without any dot on top of it um, and that kind of thing. And so I never, those unfortunately aren't in the book, but I'm not sure whether, you know, an English reader would necessarily know what, I mean, I don't know what the difference in the pronunciation between the two is, um, even talking with Mm. Alton Beck, um, and I couldn't pull it off. Um, So there are some maybe slightly more Romanized forms of certain words, um, but we have a, there's a, glossary in the back of the book um, with lots of Kazakh words. Um, so there was lots of, I mean, I was thinking when you were talking about the documentary earlier, the On the Hunting Ground, um, it's like, where were you when I was right, when I was translating this book so I could know about this documentary and, and watch it and see, get kind of a visualization of a lot of the, the things that were being described. Um, I mean, it meant the translation meant a lot of Googling, a lot of Googling and um, trying various combinations of search phrases to hope that you land upon the right thing and then double checking it back with Altenbeck. But it also meant looking at lots of beautiful pictures of rugs um, and searching wildly for the specific winter burrow and what it looks like um, so that we can get the description right. Um, it was really good. I learned a lot about a culture that I 
was really quite ignorant about um lots about food oh uh, yeah but lots of lots of food and and uh cultural phrases um that have that they're all listed in the glossary at the back and i believe there's only one chinese word in the glossary which is zongza um and the rest are all all kazakh words yeah i mean winter pastures i think has a, a much more a greater volume of these types of phrases and stuff than distant sunflower. Mm, yeah. That's what struck me most when, and reading your translation of it. And that's what I was like, that's a, that's a difference there certainly between the two, the two uh, volumes mm. for sure. It was, it was quite a challenge. Oops, sorry, go on. Google and uh, Google and Baidu, I would go through and then kind of double check things. And then you'd go and stumble around and, and, I would fall into these rabbit holes from time to time. <laughs> yeah. Not get very much translating done because I'm busy looking up and I'm like, wow, that actually is really kind of neat. Let's click this link and that link and and then the internet <laughs> rabbit hole when I realize it's it's dinner time and I'm like, oh, I, I better stop. So it. excellent work to do. Ten words translated. Brilliant. But I know a lot more about <laughs> camels or something. I, I have an anecdote, something not a million miles different. Um, so there was a book another non-fiction uh chinese to english book in translation which i was uh typesetting and doing production for as part of my job and it involves a map of the country about a man who a chinese man who walked the entire perimeter of the chinese border uh through all the basically the non-han areas more or less with some exceptions like the east coast so like tibet Xin, the, the Uyghur and the Kazakh parts of Xinjiang, lots of Mongol places, um, I guess Manchurian places. And how we did the map, we got we received the map uh, from the Chinese publishers, and I just had to go into Photoshop and recaption all the Chinese captions, which are of course all in Chinese. Um, so I, every, well, not every single one, but being, if I was trying to compliment myself, I would say conscientious. If I was trying to belittle myself, I'd say a little bit anal retentive, but I wanted to decide for everyone, should I use the Chinese pinyin or should I source it back to the original? And some of these regions, you don't even know which language you should be going back to, um, mm. or the best way to find out is to look on the map and see, find out the name of the county and see if it's assigned as one autonomous county for a particular ethnicity. And yeah, it was... Um, it was a great source of, fun, it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> so many rabbit holes. And well, I mean, of course, because the map itself is not a Chinese map. It's a Manchu Qing China. Map. Right. That's, I mean, <laughs> present day map is, is the legacy of the Qing empire. Right. Right. I mean, I remember living in Taiwan years ago and there was an elementary school and they had the, their map actually Mongolia didn't exist. It was, it was all of the old style Qing map when, you had no Mongolia whatsoever, and it, it would go down. I think you had maybe South Vietnam, and that's it. <laughs> you know, it was it was one of those types of maps. So it, it must have been, yeah, rabbit holes. It's important to dream big. Plenty, I think, yeah. <laughs> was it a struggle to fit in the um, in some of the names? Because obviously, moving from Chinese so small oh, to yeah. fitting on a full name on a map when you're going off the same size must have been a challenge. Yeah, um, line breaks for my friend. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> the uh the second dimension height um okay so moving on uh, another geographic question um and we did have to full disclaimer we did have to rephrase this one because it started off very vague uh, but the question goes something like this do you guys have any 
thoughts on China and, or sorry, Western China and the stands, Central Asia, um, both like in the literary or cultural imagination, either in China, the West or internationally? Um, uh, and do you think there's anything we can say about the frontiers of Xinjiang when compared to the other frontiers that China or borderlands that China has? So like we mentioned before, the Mongols are also hurting or some of the Mongols are, are hurting people and some of those hurting Mongols live inside China, similar to how the Kazakhs do. Is there anything interesting we can say about those in relation to Li Juan's two books? Anyone want to go first? I need to think mm. first. I kind of didn't ask that very directly. So how about this? Uh, the setting, how this setting exists in the literary imagination. Like, I guess the only reference point your average Westerner might have would be the Silk Road mm. or the Gobi Desert. But I grew up thinking the Gobi Desert was in Africa. So <laughs> That's an interesting insight. Um, yeah, welcome to my mind. Or Marco Polo, right? I mean, that's that's where Marco Polo reached, probably the Stan country. So he didn't get any further than that. Um, although, don't tell Italians. But um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, there there's a complicated relationship, I think, and and that's the legacy of empire. I mean, that's the, to me the the Qing Empire encompassed all of this because they saw these peoples as kindred spirits. They were nomadic warrior tribes and so on, and all the various khanates that you had throughout, you know, the what what was once Mongolian territory um, and 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 so on, and the the influx of 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 Islam that kind of unites them as a, a, a religious polity i suppose without the sense of nation state borders that you have mm. now that and and you know the the qing empire was ecumenical i guess it was it was welcoming of religious diversities and so on um and that allowed these places to flourish as part of this long kind of you know expansive empire but it was an empire that these places were conquered they, they, they didn't voluntarily join. And to go back to an earlier part, we mentioned about the Kazakh people being given the opportunity to be repatriated. Mm. Repatriated to, to what? Because these borders are all arbitrary. <laughs> I mean, where they live is where they've always lived in that sense. And, and where they've had their nomadic existence has been in the same place. So the, 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 the various stand countries that are there now are, are arbitrary constructs of, of Soviet yeah. times, actually. So right. you've even got the, the legacy of the Soviet Union at work here as well. And what used to be, I mean, we could go back, right, to, to the, the big game between the British Empire and, and the, 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 the Tsarist Empire, that they were also fighting over these areas, right, with, with uh, what's his name, Young, Youngblood, I think is the, the British fellow who fought his way to Lhasa in 1905 um, and so on. And, and the, the, the Russians who were there trying to fight against them, but not, but do it through proxy. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, I, I, the, the geographical terrain. I mean, that's, it's, it's hard to get your head around because this it is such a complicated thing. And, and the nation state borders that you have now, as this legacy of the Westphalian system is entirely arbitrary, um, 
and a form of nationalism that's born upon this idea of Heimat, right? To use the German phrase for it, the one land, one people, one language is, is incredibly arbitrary. And that's, I'm going off on a, it's a huge tangent here, um, but it, it's, yeah, I, I don't know how this, the, the, the various stand countries factor into Legion's work itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what you're saying, like the whole gaps in our, ability your average person's ability to understand the fluidity of these places like going back to what i knew before i knew anything about china i kind of thought of my my idea of asia was right there's the middle east there's india there's china and all those very far eastern countries there's russia that's it i didn't really know what the term central asia meant until i was living in a country which is technically part of Central Asia. China has some of Central Asia, like Xinjiang and some of Tibet, I guess you could call Central Asia. So yeah, it, but you're right. It's like the, the history is crazy. It's really interesting history. Um, but yeah, it's it only is. there, I don't know. It's not really there in the two books, but like when I was reading Winter Pasture um, and we we're living with this family of the Kazakh family and they're like pretty ordinary people. They have flaws, they have wonderful sides to them they do smart things they do stupid things and i was like right and the only things i've read about kazakhs before this were about their epic role in central asian and sometimes chinese history and then before that my only exposure to kazakhstan uh, was uh, a movie called barat which is not really about (laughs) kazakhstan at all that's true (laughs) they're good ice they're good ice hockey players all right the, the team Kazakhstan is actually a, a decent hockey team. But of course, that's the legacy of Soviets. Right. That's, that's the Red Army team. I mean, for Red Dust is the only other Chinese book I can think where there's a modern Chinese book where there's a lot of exploring of those areas. I mean, again, from an, an external perspective. Um, but someone who isn't, who definitely isn't... Um, trying to sell any political uh, perspective or kind of um, insinuate any Chinese-ness upon the places that he's visiting. So that's the, is that the Majian book, Red Dust? Um, yeah. That's and I mean, <laughs> as shallow as these things are to say in terms of the discussion, both that and the Li Juan books may have made me want to visit these areas um, and see like even though like Dun Huang is is I think it's in Gansu maybe and not in Xinjiang. Um, I think so. But also yeah. just the how much Gansu and then Xinjiang as well are kind of cult, have historically been cultural nexuses for so much, um, mm-hmm. for so many different cultures um, is fascinating. I did quite a bit of translation about kind of about art and medicine moving along the Silk Road um and just what's gone on there um and what has born out of there or mixed there and thus kind of like exploded out of it It, it's it's a wild history um and something Mm. that probably should explore a little bit more myself i mean well well, i mean it's 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 funny because it's a lot of it the center of the geopolitical world that was there was the mughal Mm. empire that, I mean, we only know in, in European history as 
the British defeated them, <laughs> and 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 that's it. And the, the the kind of legacy of the Persian miniatures, say for instance, in contemporary art forms that were brought over from Western Asia through the Mughal Empire and then up into the Stan countries, and that was a great area of influence. And that's where Islamic culture traveled as well along that that whole aspect of the Mughal Empire. And that to me is something that's incredibly overlooked as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it doesn't factor into the stories that you hear very much about this area. It's as Angus said, right? There's Russia, there's China, you know, the, there's mm, India, and then there's this blah, blah, blah. black hole, right? That's, that's the Stan countries. Um, so speaking of books that might touch on Western China that are available in translation, um, so full, dis full disclosure, that one with the map I was mentioning, that's a, that's another ACA book, actually. It's called, uh, the, the English title is The Will to Walk. So it's by Lady Anshong, this guy who set a Guinness record doing that walking. It's a bit of a strange guy, to be honest. Um, it's hard to, it's, I, I guess he's, when he's describing these places, he's not necessarily got an agenda, but it's definitely all sort of through his eyes. If there is an agenda, it's maybe the fact that he's chosen the Chinese nation to go around, but, you know, saves you crossing borders and it's a long journey. So <laughs> no need to read too much into that, I guess. I don't think he meets any Kazakhs, but he does, he does go through. I mean, it, I think it's more the, the it, probably in the West, the play, the, the cultures, and the history that come up more are Tibet, the Tibetan people and the Mongols. Um, but it is, it is there and it's interesting. Well, but, earlier in the 1980s, you had the Chinese author Ma Yuan, who was well known for his stories about Tibet because he was one of the first in the 1980s to kind of wander his way into Tibet and then write stories about Tibet. And some of these are part of the Xianfeng Wenxue, the avant-garde movement that was there in the, the mid to late 80s. Um, he kind of disappears from the scene, but th th those are interesting takes without that, without an overt agenda, certainly. Mm. Um, I can see time is still marching on. We've hit, at least in our call, we've hit about the two hour mark. So I'm going to let you guys take a nice, deep exhalation, relax, because we're going to go for some more lighthearted questions. So <laughs> first one, it's the word of the day. Um, can you guys, do you, or do you guys have a Chinese or Kazakh word of the day that you could um, recommend for the listeners for this episode? I'll admit I didn't think too hard about it. <laughs> so I don't know if I have a word of the day. Um, well, Jack, do you want to go first? I could scream if that would go <laughs> with the word of the day <laughs> when somebody says it. <laughs> uh, wait, you want to scream? Why? Do you know the reference? I, I've forgotten. I'm dating myself now. This is 80s, 90s television show for kids. Pee Wee Herman. And it's is wacky, I'm, weird, I'm wild. Afraid I'm not house. North American. Oh know. yeah, it's it, well. Every time there was a word of a day, and and as soon as the word of the day was said by anyone, great klaxons would go brrr, and everybody oh. would go nuts when they said the word of the day. Should it's probably on YouTube now. I'm gonna steal that, but I'm gonna use like the Chinese gong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, that's what it was. It was this great big thing that came down. I think if I remember correctly, it was like this big horn that would go. Brrr, and then everybody would just lose their marbles for a brief moment as the word of the day was said. Right. Well, you are not allowed to do that. Sorry. 
just out of not trying to hurt anyone's ears listening on headphones. Yeah. Uh, I've got a word of the day. I did a Kazakh one and a Chinese one. Is that okay? Yeah. You're not going to cut, cut me off halfway through. I might, but not right now. <laughs> it depends which words of the day it is. Um, yeah. So the Kazakh one is, I mean, again, excuse my pronunciation, is koichi. Um, oh, yeah. Which uh, in Chinese, um, Li Juan rendered it as "huotie." Uh, I'm reading out of the glossary here in the back of the book. So it's a versatile exclamation, often meaning "no way," "no thanks," "get out," "leave it out," um, and any number of other things similar to that. Um, mm. Because it's used so much in the book uh, in Winter Pasture, there are whole sections where it's maybe twelve koichis in a row when. Like, for example, Karma, the daughter, is not wanting to do something. And she's like, koichi, 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 koichi. And I don't know how you would say it and what the tone would be, but it's everywhere. I misread it as I was going through. I thought it was supposed to mean something like stupid. Like, I don't know. I have memories of saying something stupid around a Chinese friend and they want to dismiss it. So they just go like, shadza or something. Mm. Like, it, I got at least <laughs> the impression it was something you use if something like he's just ridiculous and you want to dismiss it but yeah it's quite charming i remember the, the kids seem to use it quite a lot if that if i remember right. yeah definitely i mean I, I i i mean i'm no expert but i don't feel like that interpretation is far wrong to be honest from some of the uses it feels pretty yeah pretty malleable phrase um and yeah it's brilliant it's quite a lot of fun to shout as well um uh, <laughs> I now use it at home to everyone's amusement. Um, and then the Chinese one is uh, Huang Ye. Uh, so Huang and Ye. So Huang meaning, I guess like, I actually don't know what the word on its own means. Um, like it's often used in like emptiness or um, uh, absurdity, like Huang Tan. And um, the, the word anyway together, Huang Ye means wilds or wilderness. Um, yeah, meaning right. wilds. Huang kind of meaning large and empty and desolate. Um, and that's mm-hmm. how she refers to where they live. It, it was a, a long conversation to decide how to, to translate that word. Cool. That's a, that's a character I'm going to have to teach myself, the Huang one. Sounds cool. Mm. Ah! <laughs> Klaxon! <laughs> wow, wow, wow! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just had to get that in. I've been I've been waiting with bated breath just to get in that to, that to go crazy. <laughs> Angus is looking angrily at us both on the on the camera. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm looking at I'm on Google Translate. I just realized I've seen I think I've seen Huang before. Um, uh, Chen Chiofan's waist tide is it's the same Huang uh, Huang Chao. So something like wild wave or chaotic wave or something mm. is the Chinese title. So I had I had seen it before. Yeah, it's a neat it's a neat character, and you can it, it, there's some versions of it where it has the yan the spoken form for language in front mm. of it mm. as well. Um, when you so different connotations, like there's a Taiwanese writer who wrote um, this great short story called Huang Ye. So wilderness and it's this nature writing of observations of being out in the wilds or the uncultivated land, I suppose you could call it type of thing. Cool. Okay, next to the question. Um, feel free to add your sound effects. If each book was a drink, uh, be this a hard, soft, hot or cold drink, what would it be? 
two rules here. One is a kind rule, one, one is a prohibitive rule. So prohibitive rule first. You can't say it's a very strong coffee. You can't say it's a cocktail of lots of different things because that's just too easy. Um, the, fun, the kind rule is if you're stuck, you can say a food. Why, why not a very strong coffee? Are you, I mean, you took it straight out of my mouth. Because everyone says that. Not really, do they? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a very peaty, single malt whiskey, Ooh. preferably, you know, from, from some small distillery up in, in Scotland, in the Highlands. Really peaty, really dark, really, you know, flavorful and you can't have ice you you can add a little dash of water to circulate the flavors but nothing more than that it you know and maybe one or two fingers and that would be it and it's something that you sip and allow the flavor to kind of explode over your tongue so i don't have a specific one but that's where i would put this well, in the tongue. Field. i don't um, like that choice yeah <laughs> what about winter pasture day? Because I didn't specify. You both got different books to to represent. Um, Would winter pasture be a cold drink, like a milkshake or something? Well, actually, I was thinking, I was thinking it would be. So what I wrote was hot cocoa or hot chocolate, depending on where you are, because I mean, even though the elements are harsh in the book and they're really against it a lot of the time, you know, the reading of the book, you're pretty you got to feel pretty smitten with yourself if you're sat on a nice comfy chair um, reading about the hardships of Lidran kind of freezing her fingers um, and being not, not reveling in them, but just happy of the fact that you're maybe not out there freezing as well. Um, mm. And there is, there is a, there is a sweetness to Lidran as well, um, especially with her sense of humor. Um, so maybe there'd be a sprinkling of small marshmallows in there that you kind of get occasionally um, in in the odd mouthful. Yeah, and they'd be the same color as the spray painted cat, I guess. <laughs> yes, bright red. <laughs> yeah, I should probably say for any readers who don't want to read or to come across descriptions of a cat being like flung around a room and made to dance and stuff, you may wish to avoid winter pasture. Um, yeah, that's been the main, when I've talked to people about it or seen um, discussions about it online, that's the main, not bugbear of people, but the point of, of distaste, really. And it's completely yeah. understandable. Mm. Um, especially, I think, the, as well because of how she describes the person who inflicts this suffering upon the cat, which is Tuma, who's a drunk. Um, but she has yeah. a lot of respect for him at the same time and considers him a bit of like a a buffoon, but in a, a jokey way, as opposed to calling him a buffoon because he's committing evils. Um, and yeah, her description, she's not harsh enough about him is kind of a general consensus, I think, uh, when he's doing such things to cats, which is definitely true. But I think she's unsure how to, to think about him, maybe. I don't know. I'm not decided. My, my feeling is just if you want to read translated literature rather than like a China book written by a Westerner, whatever shape, shape of Westerner it might be, if you're wanting to get something from another culture, it's a bit stupid to like want to have your cake and eat it. So to mm. read something from another person from another culture, but never encounter anything that makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. And mm. yeah, like it might 
maybe someone someone might get mad at me for saying treatment of animals is cultural differences and not something objective but definitely people's attitudes towards how to treat animals it's not uniform across the world like yeah i've seen i've seen people in china who love their pet cat or their pet dog but aren't adverse to like dangling it by its front legs and shit stuff like that mm. it's just that's reality especially it's out in the in the countryside uh, yeah 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 I mean, it happens in the UK still now, in in like mainland Europe too. Um, right. When if you live in a farming area, an agricultural area, the relationship with animals is so different. Yeah, yeah. Like farmers in the UK love their collie dogs, but they don't cuddle them and put them in little hats and stuff. <laughs> well, I remember going to my mum's hometown years and years ago, and this is a small island off the coast of Newfoundland. And uh, being struck struck by the fact that they, you know, a cat had a litter and they took the kittens and wrapped them in a bag and threw it in the water and let it sink. Because she don't want all these kittens, you know. So, yeah, it's definitely not uniform. And, and when I think part of the, the, the point of reading translated literature is, is, I mean, you almost want to be a little unsettled in places or at least disorientated in places because that's the whole point of reading translated literature i mean to, to see different perspectives and different points of view and 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 so on that that's what makes it interesting i i, I bought for my mom for christmas uh, a subscription to asymptom magazine the, the book club and she's got three books and and the first one was an italian that uh, the name escapes me right now but it's this kind of philosophical meditation of this guy who buggers off up into the mountains and then when he comes down society has collapsed and there's nobody around and he's ruminating on all of these things and my mom was like uh yeah i don't know about this one this one seems a little bit but she read it and you know that's the whole point it's it's to read these translated literatures that you know maybe don't fit with your expectations necessarily and and that's part of the joy, I think, of, of reading these types of things. For sure, yeah. Well, we're getting to the last miscellaneous question. It's the self-promo slot. So I guess, Christopher, you've been through this before with me. Um, but yeah, if you guys have got anywhere you'd like to direct the listeners to your own work or presences online, uh, go for it. So bearing in mind, we are recording this on 21st of February. Uh, and it'll be, but it'll be coming out probably sometime in March. I have a very minimal digital presence, so nothing really to direct people to. Um, you know, at oh, that I will yeah. leave it. I don't really have much by way of self promotion, other than I'm I'm currently in Toronto. You've got some other <laughs> so, translations that are out there, I guess. I mean, we did one on the show before. Uh, uh, Empires of Dust. Yeah, there are options. There, I think some of them are mentioned on my university page. Um, but other than that, um, yeah, I don't, I don't go on Twitter and stuff, so I'm a little bit um, analog, I suppose. But um, yeah, no, sorry. I, I mean, Jack, go ahead, please. Everyone, <laughs> everyone who uses Twitter is very jealous of you. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I suppose I can direct you to my Twitter. It's not something I've ever done before. Um, but Jack D. Hargreaves, if you uh, if you are at all interested, I mainly retweet Chinese literature related things or translated literature related things, express very little of my own opinion. So if you're looking for a news source without a voice, come to me. Um, 
no translations coming out immediately. Um, but around about now, when the episode is out, um, Paper Republic, uh, which Eric Abrahamson, previous guest, was the founder of, or is the founder of, and I'm a member of, um, and put together some activities for. Uh, we have Sunday Sentence out at the moment. Um, I mean, oh yeah, I like those. Join in. <laughs> um, also, just if you haven't been on the site yet, have a look at the site because there might be a few things freshly up. But we've got a new season of Sunday Sentence, which is a translation game. Um, so if you speak a bit of Chinese and you want to try your hand at translation, um, everyone jumps in on the comments for that week's sentence and has a go at translating and then talks about it. And right now we're doing, I mean, right now in the future. Is it from a kid's book? Uh, this time, this time that... it was kid's book, but by the time this episode comes out, it will be um, sentences from the four classics. And then... Ooh. After that, we're going to do sentences from four modern classics. Um, oh, and then after that, there's going to be a season of just kind of contemporary sentences. So depending on what your Chinese, if you've never done classical Chinese before, then you could um, wait a second. But I guess like Sanguo uh, Yeni is maybe doable anyway. Or you could be like Ezra Pound and just, you know, invent meanings from it. We actually had uh, in the first series we did for i can't remember whose sentence it was that we was it eileen chang or was it um wang anyu uh a french translator who doesn't speak chinese came in and did added her own translation just based off everyone else's translations and it it was a really good translation but obviously she has no knowledge of chinese which she admitted to um but yeah i mean if you don't speak any chinese come on ahead and just rewrite other people's stuff <laughs> I've been teaching a little bit on Ezra Pound and then that's, I mean, the early days of Cathay and stuff, it was all translations of translations of translations and stuff. And he looked at East, right? The character of East and, and broke it up. It's the man, the tree and the sun. So it's a man standing in front of a tree with the sun coming up behind them. Hence you get East because that's where the sun rises. And you're kind of like, okay, I kind of see where you're going with this, but I don't think that's where the character came <laughs> from. But, you know, I guess in this weird Poundian way of imagist poetry and stuff, it, it, there, you know, there is a certain logic that's there. Um, and then when I show, I have a lot of uh, exchange students from China who were, were not familiar with Pound. And then they're all like, this is unbelievable. Like, wow. I never thought East was that. And then they're all like, this is okay. This is totally accurate. And I'm like, it's not right. Like you do realize Ezra Pound was imagining thing, these things, but it's, it's funny how all those things circulate. I mean, it's scary how much that still happens now. I can't remember the guy's name, but there's a translator who's translated like the Bhagavad Gita and um, the Tao, de, like the Tao Te Ching and uh, speaks not a word of either um sanskrit or which i assume i think the bhagavad gita was sanskrit wasn't it and or classical chinese and still has many translations out um which are sold quite widely and it's very questionable well this course that i teach is uh classical chinese and english translations so that's what we look at is all of these types of things and it's it's far out i mean some of the the history of these translations mm. the french Jesuits were called the that uh, started to translate the I Ching. They were uh, figurists. At least that's what they were named as afterwards. 
and they actually believed that the I Ching was the um, actually the, the whole writ that <laughs> it explained the 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 Trinity, the Gospels, and all of that. Never, you know, forgetting conveniently that it's two thousand years prior <laughs> to to uh, the birth of Jesus. But that's what they were like, because of course Christianity was the only religion and. It predates itself, et cetera, et cetera. And you're kind of like, wow. I mean, was opium there in China at that time when they were there? <laughs> <laughs> Just all. Or absinthe. That could be another ex- a, a drink to describe the books. Absinthe. Chasing the Green Dragon. That's come up a few times. It's not quite, I'm not quite banning that one yet. Um, but I think if someone says absinthe, I'm going to start yeah. saying, no, pick another really strong. Well, my PD whiskey. We'll leave it with that. Tea whiskey was good. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, we finished the miscellaneous questions. Now we're getting on to the further reading questions. So if our listeners want to read more along similar lines, uh, where should they look? And we don't have to restrict ourselves to um, Chinese lit here. Could be anything. We've, we've name dropped a few books already, but do you guys want to name drop any more? Yeah. I'm, do they have to? I suppose the best if they're in English, right? Yeah, although we do have Chinese speaking and Chinese listeners, so it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be too crazy to recommend something you can only get in Chinese. I mean, I I, I hope that this we, this book is in English in the future. I, I've written down two: one is in Chinese, and hopefully we'll get some translations from him soon, and the other is English. Um, but Li uh, Liu Liangcheng, who is also based in Xinjiang, also a Han writer, is he Han? I think he is. Um, and he's got a village of one, so Yigeren, the Tundrong, um, which is very similar to Winter Pasture in many ways. It, it's him in his village in um, Xinjiang and just talking about the animals around him, talking about life, lots of isolation, lots of um, loneliness, lots of kind of really personifying the uh, the nature about him, maybe a little bit more animism than um, Li Juan, but really good stuff, um, highly recommended. And then in English, a book out from Daunt Books, which was originally out in 1976 called The Solace of Open Spaces by Gretel Erlich. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but a woman moves to vast farming territory um, in the States, um, and it's her kind of memoir description of that. Um, so lots of similarities, lots of crossover. Okay, Christopher. First for in, in English, um, a Canadian author, uh, Margaret Lawrence, not Atwood, the other Margaret that writes. In, <laughs> um, she's got this great novel uh, called The Stone Angel, which is um, a about this really, it's an older woman, a stubborn older woman who's had this extraordinary life on the, the prairies. Um, so the farming area of Canada, so Manitoba, Saskatchewan area. And um, she's this hard-willed woman that kind of echoes, I think, Lidrian's mom to some extent. Um, and this very powerful character. Um, and it's a great story. So that would be one for an English. And um, a, a Chinese one, I the t- a Taiwanese author by the name of Wang Jiaxiang, who's not been translated, um, but he has this series called the um, Historical Fantasy. So I think it's five or six books that kind of retells um, 
the history of Taiwan through narrative stories that kind of reinterpret some of the Aboriginal history. And one of the volumes, there's, I think there's six in total. One of the volumes is uh, about Kokshinga or uh, the, the half Japanese pirate prince um, of the, the late Ming, uh, early Qing period. And then there's another one uh, that talks about the uh, Aboriginal peoples in Taiwan, the, the existence of the Xiaoai Ren or the little people. So there's the, that, that's a great series by uh, Wang Jiaxiang. That, um, that sounds incredible. And if, yeah, explores different aspects of lived history in Taiwan and even brings in like a, a British, I think he's a British missionary adventurer who travels along on uh, bits of the railroad on one of those little push railroad carts that he has a servant do it and he sits on top, real fellow actually, um, historical fellow. So that's the interesting bit is that these are based on real history um, and then kind of creatively interpreted. Like one is uh, this Japanese ethnographer, Mori Ushino, Ushinosuke, who um, in 19, he, was, he did ethnographical studies on the Taiwanese Aboriginal peoples. And he was uh, trying to promote um, greater protection for Aboriginal peoples. And of course, the Japanese Empire wants the imperialization uh, policy, the Kominka or Huang Minhua started uh, partway through their colonial period, then, you know, everything, everybody had to be Japan, Japanized. And so he jumps off, he, he sails back to Japan and jumps off the boat and he's never seen again. That's the real person. But Wang Jiaxia takes this, actually, he jumps off the boat and swims back to Taiwan and then joins up with this Aboriginal tribe and lives the rest of his life there. And that's kind of an interesting story as well. My own recommendation is these are both books written in English. Neither of them are really that close to either of um, Lee Juan's books, but they kind of different in from particular angles. I think they remind me of, of Lee Juan's writing. One is uh, The Liar's Club by Mary Carr, which is probably the best sort of memoir book I've ever read. Um, probably it's only really got two things in common with uh, Lee Juan's books. One is it's very idiosyncratic. You can tell she's got a strong, Mary Carr's got a strong personality mm -hmm. and a slightly unconventional journey through life. And two is she has a very strange mother and she writes a lot about her. Um, so there's that. And the other one is, maybe this one's a bit more out there, but have either of you read Going Solo by Roald Dahl, his memoir of like his young adulthood? No, I haven't. That's a really interesting book. I think it's maybe overshadowed a, book, a bit by his book, Boy, about being mm -hmm. a boy. Going solo is basically everything after high school, but he gets thrown right into the thick of it because he goes off to uh, Africa where he's working for the Shell Company. But uh, imperialism being what it is, he's basically it's basically a British Empire outpost, and he's there when World War II kicks off. So and, and then he ends up going around on like the Mediterranean sort of campaigns. So he's in a lot of arid environments, maybe a little bit like distant sunflower fields. Mm -hmm. And again, he's an outsider from well, maybe not an empire, but he's from like the sort of the dominant power there is it's not that. Yeah. Uh, he's from the dominant power and he's in various foreign lands and maybe again, like Lee Juan, maybe I'm reaching here, but again, like Lee Juan, he's got a fairly strong personality goes his own way and so on. So yeah, those are my recommendations. Uh, very last question. What are you guys reading now? Um, I'm reading the, uh, Cairo Trilogy by Bafouz, um, the basic, uh, the epic tale 
uh, translated some years ago from the Arabic about um, Egypt in the early 20th century and this family history. So it's along the lines of those, you know, big trilogy books. You've got um, Gino Achebe's African trilogy. I think I might have mentioned it in that the event a couple of weeks ago. I'm reading the Cairo trilogy now. Um, right. The Cairo. I misheard you and put the Pyro no, trilogy. No, Cairo, 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 Cairo trilogy. <laughs> All right. So it's not a fantasy novel about people who can shoot no, fire. No, but that, that sounds fun. And I'm actually rereading yeah. um, Ernest Fenelosa's the, the Chinese ideogram as uh, as a, a source for for poetry. It's there's a couple, some years ago, um, what's his name on Saucy, and a couple other pe- people. Lucas Klein was involved with it. Um, they redid Ernest Fenelosa's essay as Pound redid it, and they have this kind of annotated edition that came out. That's um, it's fascinating reading actually, and they they have the essay with how pound published it and then they have the essay minus pound um and then you have all these annotations about all these crazy stories how they got the characters and what the characters meet so that's actually that's kind of fun reading and jack what are you reading just now i mean christopher just said said it actually uh chinua achebe's uh things fall apart i'm reading at the moment um my first time i've read anything by him um and really enjoying it and yeah, I mean that is, I guess, in a similar way to Winter Pasture, like a, although obviously things fall apart is an absolute classic. Um, mm. A look into a a culture and a way of life that, at least for me, is quite um, is very new, very foreign. Um, and then also, uh, just to give an independent press a shout out, This Paradise, the short story collection by Ruby Cowling from Boiler House Press. Um, from like their latest series of of books doing really interesting things with the short story making stories out of things you might not expect to be able to make a story um well that's me all out of questions so i'll just say thank you both for for coming i can't say coming along because we're in a zoom room but thanks for coming on the show it's a very fun chat and i feel like i'm a little bit wiser about you drawn on our books so yeah thanks so much thank you well thanks for having us Yeah, thanks for having us. So that is the end of the show. And our very last thing, you'll know this all off by heart by now, it's the ending plugs. So I'll try and get through these speedily. So the first one is the mailing list. Once I hit 50 subscribers on this, I'll start sharing blogs or thoughts or behind the scenes on the show. For now, it's just updates of when new episodes come out. But yeah, that is uh, the Trutrific mailing list. There'll be a link for that in the show notes and on the show's homepage at uh, trutrific.podbean.com. Trutrific being T-R-C-H-F-I-C. If you want to support the show tangibly, which means with money, and also uh, if you want to enjoy bonus content like an episode, which is just 22 minutes of me breaking down the cover of the new Journey to the West book, uh, translated by Julia Lovell, or me ranting about robots and uh, gender, a popular topic uh, in my preamble for the episode I'm going to do on the membranes by Chiotawe. That's all up behind a mightily high one USD a month paywall on Patreon. Although, of course, you can give more if you want to make me. Um, the, show's social, the show's social media. So there's three of them. You probably know this off by heart. There's Instagram at Trichofic. 
or T-R-C-H-F-I-C, um, that's a good place to not be driven insane by Twitter and also to get in touch. Uh, if you do want to be driven insane by Twitter, it's at Angus Likes Words, that's where you can find me. You will generally find me not expressing my opinions on Twitter. Um, if you want to join the show's Discord and talk to fans, uh, like-minded individuals, there's an invite to our Discord server in the show notes. Now, the best thing you can do for the show is telling people, I think, spreading the word. So tell your teacher, tell your friend, and tell all the animals, uh, the chickens, the dogs, the little bunny rabbits, the goats, and the sunflowers, even though they're not animals. Um, tell them all. If you're not on the Xinjiang step, then maybe just tell your cat. But don't spray paint it and don't throw it around the room, because that's morally wrong. Please remember that and catch you again next time uh, on the next episode. So until then, Sai Jian.